the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to the first episode of Season 7 of Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Rick Lee, and as always, I am joined by Dr. Lee Johnson and Jason Reed. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, we are sitting here in a hotel bar and we need some drinks because we'd have nothing in front of us. <laughs> and so I'm going to ask my co-hosts for their drink orders and then see whether they are ranting or raving this week. So Lee, let me start with you. What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? Well, welcome back, guys. I think I'm just going to have a bourbon on the rocks today and I am raving about a new trend that I saw on TikTok about fake baby names. So there's this trend going around that says, what are some words that would be good baby names if they didn't actually mean what they mean? And some of these have been hilarious, like felony or <laughs> syndrome, you know. But I want to give my own contribution to this trend. I think Inky would be a really good name for a kid. <laughs> Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I'm going to have a mojito, and I'm going to rave about a comic book called The Department of Truth, published by Image Comics by James Tinian and Martin Simmons. comes out every month or so, but also can be found in graphic novel form. It has to do with conspiracy theories. It is probably one of the best fictional treatment of the sort of breakdown of a consensus about reality that I've read. And plus, it's amazingly rendered visually. Every panel is painted. They do interesting stuff with collage. If you think comic books are just for kids and dum-dums, this is definitely something to dissuade you of that idea. So, are you, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Today, I will have a Negroni, and I am ranting about both the Florida State Legislature and <laughs> the Board of Governors of the Florida State University System, who have now instituted post-tenure review every five years. <laughs> Essentially, it is the removal of tenure from the Florida State System. We fight the woke in the legislature. We we fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. I just want to see how that's going to work out for them in the long run. I know a lot of people, if they had their druthers, would rather not teach in a system that does not have the protections of tenure, especially a place like Florida, where free speech is more and more an issue every day. A place like Florida where woke goes to die. <laughs> Don't say gay, Lee. Don't say gay. <laughs> so for our first episode, as now has become our custom, Hotel Bar Sessions is off to the movies. Today, we are discussing the film The Conversation. Jason, this was your choice. So why don't you tell us why you chose this film and how you want to approach it? So uh, the conversation was released in 1974 between two godfathers, which in some sense overshadowed it. 
It's often hailed as one of the defining films of the post-Watergate era, dealing with surveillance, conspiracy, and paranoia. But I also think it's an interesting study of a particular kind of character, a particular kind of subject, and a particular way of being in the world. Gene Hackman's Harry Call is a man who endeavors to be an island, to have no connection with anyone, and to focus on just the pure technical details of his work without thinking about its larger implications. It has nothing to do with me, is kind of his catchphrase and his general attitude. Also, it's a film that really raises interesting questions about what does it mean to know something? What does it mean to have evidence? And how do our own fears and desires serve as filters to kind of frame what it is we know or think we know. So I'm really curious to hear what we think we know about the conversation. You'd kill us if you got the chance. So for those of you who haven't seen it, although I really recommend you hit pause now and watch it before the rest of the conversation. Spoiler alert. Because we're going to give away everything. <laughs> the film, The Conversation, is about Gene Hackman's character, Harry Call, who is a surveillance expert working in San Francisco. And at the beginning of the film, we see him tasked with recording a conversation between a couple that takes place in Union Square in San Francisco. And as he prepares a surveillance, he begins to have suspicions about what might happen to this couple once he turns over the tapes and becomes reluctant to do so, even as the people who are charged him with the task of surveillance are very anxious to get their hands on the tapes, including a very young Harrison Ford making one of his early screen appearances. And he's dreaming. <laughs> Cosign, meow. <laughs> and eventually, of course, the tapes are put into the right hands and then, well, we'll tell you what happens later, but that's enough for a synopsis for now. So I guess the first thing to talk about is the film's treatment of surveillance. I think it's interesting the film deals with surveillance not just coming from sort of Big Brother from the government, but the idea that anyone could hire a surveillance expert and anyone mm -hmm. could be privy to any sort of information at any time. You know, the film sort of shows us a surveillance convention where various different devices that can be placed in a clock and your phone are displayed. I mean, for me, I think it's interesting to think about the film now in terms of both the fear of total surveillance and where we stand with the sort of technology from the film that seems kind of quaint and dated compared to what's available to observe us now. Well, that was something that really struck me is that all of it is analog. There are reel-to-reel -reel tapes. Everything depends on microphones. The phones are, you know, some of them are dial-up phones. And for those of you who never saw a dial-up phone, there used to be a dial and you'd put your finger on a number, spin the dial around and let it go. And yet, with all that sort of clunky, you know, 1900s analog technology, the ability to surveil almost ubiquitously is really amazing to me. You know, there are a couple of stretches in the technology, I think. Like there's a demonstration of a device that you could put in someone's phone. And then when you call that phone, the phone becomes a microphone. I think that's impossible with the old fashioned technology. But other than that, I don't think it's a big stretch. And yet the ability for a company and for the government to surveil, even in a crowded park at noontime on a weekday, was really remarkable to me. Yeah, I think it's also important to remember that this story takes place 
I'm guessing immediately after Watergate yeah. or in the midst of the Nixon resignation. And so it is tapping into a cultural moment where this kind of surveillance and phone tapping and privacy invasions were what everyone was talking about. And everybody was a little bit paranoid that <laughs> you know they were being watched or listened to all the time. I mean, you know, this is before my time. This is like, I would have just been born when this was happening. But I'm wondering how much of the Nixon story we think plays into this story being as compelling as it is. I mean, partially because it's suggested a couple times in the film, although never really stated directly, that maybe one or more of the characters might have been somehow tangentially involved in the Nixon tape scandals. But it definitely is a background reference throughout the film. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in 1974, I was eight years old. I think the Nixon impeachment was one of the first political memories I have. One of the characters does say that he was wiretapping a candidate for president. He won't say which party. And that candidate didn't win. Mm -hmm. That links him to what were called the plumbers who broke into the Watergate Hotel. They were involved in a surveillance operation of the Democratic Party. That's a pretty clear clue that he at least was involved in the committee to reelect the president wiretapping Democratic candidates, which is how the whole Watergate incident came to light and started in the first place. And then secondly, the odd thing about the Watergate scandal is that Nixon's own surveillance of himself is what in the end brought him down. Yeah. <laughs> right. So he recorded all these conversations in the Oval Office on the telephone, and eventually those were subpoenaed and, and he had to turn them over. And that's how he was brought down through his own surveillance. Yeah, it is interesting, though, that apparently Coppola wanted to make this film before Watergate even happened, mm. that this was kind of his dream project. When The Godfather made money, this is the immediate thing that he went to next. And like I said, it was released between the two Godfathers, and Coppola lost out to himself for the Oscars. It was Godfather 2 against this film and other films as well, but he lost out to himself. It was kind of overshadowed by that. So he had this interest in the surveillance story before, in some sense, it was sort of serendipitous that it came out after, even though it's mentioned in a lot of places that some of the technology overlaps, some of the surveillance technology that they used. And this film was some of the technology used in the Watergate break-in. I'm not sure what exactly. I'm just going to be honest. This is the first time I ever saw this movie, and I am really angry that I've never seen it before. Because, first of all, I think it is a beautifully shot movie. It has a starkness to it. You know, all of the spaces, especially the interior spaces, are really large and roomy, but also almost barren of the minimal of furnishings. There are a lot of scenes in brutalist architecture, wherever that place is, is in an amazing brutalist building. And even the hotel where a scene takes place is an incredible example of brutalist architecture. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly well shot. And I want to link one element up with the point where I think you were going, Jason, and that is the raincoat that he wears throughout this movie. Even when it's not raining. <laughs> Even when it's not raining. And it is a specific raincoat that I don't see anymore, but it's a kind of plasticky vinyl, very thin, 
businessman could fold this up in a really small envelope and just toss it in your briefcase so that you didn't have to wear it unless it was actually raining. It's only utilitarian because it's so hideous. All it does is keep rain off of your suit that you probably bought at JCPenney's. <laughs> and yet he wears this throughout the film. And it was an interesting way of thinking about how as much as he tries to separate himself from the world around him, how thin and cheap that separation turns out to be. It's almost nothing, and it turns mm -hmm. out in the end to be useless. This was also my first time seeing the film, and I'm mad at myself for not having <laughs> seen it before. It's a really, truly great film. One of the things that I think Coppola does very well, I mean, all of Coppola's films are moody, right? right. <laughs> and they have this kind of underlying affective tone to them. And this one is paranoid. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, mm -hmm. at the same time, both claustrophobic and very distant feeling. Yeah. But one of the things that serves the thematic elements of the film is captured in part by the raincoat that Rick just mentioned. I mean, this is a film about surveillance. It's a film about trying to see into things that are supposed to be private, that are supposed mm -hmm. to be hidden. And just as we can see through Gene Hackman's raincoat, he can see through this crowd of people into this very private conversation. His various paramours can in some ways see through his outer shell of not wanting to be known, not wanting to reveal anything, not wanting to answer any personal questions about himself. So there is this kind of strange commentary on surveillance that, you know, as much as we fear surveillance, we are both paranoid that we're always being surveilled and also pretty confident that people can see through whatever privacy guards we have up. Mm. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things about the film is that even before it really even begins, there's a scene of Union Square and Gene Hackman is walking and there's a mime in the crowd, and the mime walks along him and imitates his gait and his drinking of the coffee. And it just shows that, you know, I think a lot of us think that if we're outside in a big city, we're kind of invisible and anonymous because there's so many people and there's so much right. going on. We can sort of mind our own business and be left alone. But how exposed we often are to the observation of others that even in that little scene, which is incredibly low tech, it's just a mime seeing him, that you can be seen, you can be imitated, you can be followed, and how thin the sort of protection is. And I really like that idea because one of the interesting things about the raincoat is it also means that nothing touches you, right? And, right. And very early in the film, when Gene Hackman goes back to his apartment, some of the other people in the building know it's his birthday. His landlord knows it's his birthday. And this very simple gesture of knowing someone's birthday and saying happy birthday is something that very much upsets him. You know, he tells his landlord that he's going to use a P.O. box from that point forward so that no one can check his mail and he's going to have the locks replaced and no one will be able to even know that tiny incidental little fact about him that it's his birthday. I do think that Gene Hackman's character, Harry, is meant to represent the American psyche at the time mm -hmm. with regard to surveillance. In his sort of slow descent into paranoia bordering on madness is meant to, again, mimic the American psyche at the time. One of the things that I found really interesting about watching this film in 2023 is Despite it being so prescient in terms of surveillance technology and the way that surveillance technology was going to advance and eventually touch us all, 
I didn't feel the way that I imagine people felt about surveillance in 1974. And I don't really think that most people do now. And I think that some of that has to do with the switch from analog to digital. So let me try this out on you guys. I'm not, I'm not a positive about this, but over the last 50 years, the way that we've been surveilled has moved from analog to digital and in many ways from being visible to us, like literally visible to us, CCTV cameras or those sorts of things to algorithms and cookies where we don't really know how their surveillance works or if it's there, but we just assume it's there because it was everywhere when we could see it, right? right? I mean, I know people worry about being surveilled, but I don't think that the paranoia is the same now. I mean, it seems like we're a little bit meh about surveillance Mm. now. Mm. Like, you know, I mean, it's there. I know it's there. I probably can't see it. I'll protest every now and then when it goes a little bit too far. But I've just resigned myself to the fact that privacy is dead and it's time to move on. That raises then a really interesting question about the argument that one could find, for example, in Michel Foucault in Discipline and Punish, where he talks about a prison that is designed for a kind of constant surveillance of prisoners. And the argument he makes there is that the issue for the coercive power is not that they can see what everyone is doing, but rather that at any time they could see anyone completely will modify the behavior of the prisoners. And so, Lee, I'm wondering, you know, now that we've become kind of meh, is that argument no longer telling? That is, does the idea that we're being surveilled, does it no longer affect our behavior? I mean, I mean, I don't know, but I think that maybe it doesn't affect our behavior as much. And I think this touches on another theme that I saw in the film, which is the kind of contrast between hearing and listening, Mm, right? mm So Gene Hackman's character, he's a surveillance expert. He's totally concentrated on hearing and not really so much on listening. And I mean, he doesn't listen to other people when they talk to him throughout the film. Like his girlfriend says at one point, you don't even listen to me when I talk to you on the phone. But he's obsessed with hearing exactly what is being said in his surveillance work. And of course, spoiler alert here, I mean, the big plot twist of the film is that he hasn't actually been able to listen well to what he was hearing, misheard, you know, or misunderstood Mm -hmm. what he was hearing. And so I do think that in some ways, our approach to being surveilled now is like, okay, yeah, somebody's probably hearing, but the likelihood of somebody listening is pretty small, you know, so like, I don't have to worry about it that much. Yeah, I think our attitude is kind of like the couple in the movie. We assume we're in a big crowd, and we assume that the signal-noise ratio would be such that there's so much going on that our particular conversation is not going to be picked up because there's so much else happening at the same time. We're kind of acting as if we're in a crowd rather than, like in the film, there are also other ways people try to avoid surveillance, like the story about the welfare fund and the people who talk about it only on a fishing boat, right? They're trying to remove themselves from any device. That's one strategy to avoid. But I think most of us assume that everything we do that generates so much metadata that can be observed and so on is kind of like people walking down a busy city street everyone else is doing it too. So the chances of someone focusing on us or hearing specifically what we're doing is slim. So we just kind of assume we're more noise than signal. 
Mm-hmm. But that yeah. raises an interesting flip-flop in the public-private determination, because in the film, many of the characters, as you point out, Jason, they go in public in order to be private. That is to sort of get lost in the shuffle, get lost in the crowd. You know, what they're saying will be muffled by all the other conversations going on. And the example you gave of the welfare fund, who would only talk on a boat, like they try this extreme move into not just privacy, but isolation. And in a strange way, it's precisely because of that, that they can be surveilled. And I think that's also Harry's undoing in the end. That, you know, the first time he comes to his apartment, they show him unlocking the door. But the first shot is of an ADT sticker that is an alarm sticker. And he clearly has an alarm. And by the end of the movie, I'm wondering... Wow, is that how they actually got their surveillance in, that he brought it in himself by having an alarm and trying to isolate himself and become so intensely private that it actually made it much easier for him to be surveilled? If I could just return for a second to the Panopticon reference that Rick mentioned earlier. So the Panopticon is the name of the prison that Rick described from Foucault. So it's a prison where all of the prisoners are arranged in such a way that they could be surveilled at all times. They don't know if they're being surveilled or not, but they could be. One of the things that is interesting about our current surveillance culture is that We may not know if anyone's actually looking at us or not or listening to us or not, but we know we're in the prison, right? (laughs) Like we know, so, I mean, you know, like we know that we're prisoners. This is why I think it doesn't inspire paranoia in the same way as it would if we didn't know that we were always Mm. being surveilled. Mm -hmm. There was this very famous study with security cameras, right? That people's behavior changes if they notice that there's a security camera whether there's anybody behind their security camera or whether it's even functional doesn't matter. Just the fact that it's there is going to change people's behavior. I think now we know it's always there. We don't even have to see the camera anymore. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So the film is often discussed as kind of a character study, and I'm really interested, beyond the surveillance stuff, of the character of Harry Call, played by Gene Hackman, and especially the way in which he tries to look at his own connection or disconnection from others around him. Throughout the film, his co-workers say things like, I wonder what they're talking about. And he says, I'm not interested. I have no interest in curiosity. I'm not interested in human nature. I just want a good, thick recording, right? I just want the technical recording. And back to what Lee was saying about listening and hearing, he just wants recording to be good. He isn't interested in what's on it. And then later in the film, going back to the welfare fund, people were murdered 
And his attitude is that had nothing to do with me. I just gave the tapes, right? He's very much a person who sees his work as only technical. He just wants a good sound. And what happens after the fact is not what he does. It's what someone else does, you know? And I really think of him as almost like a kind of... Eichmann-esque character, to Mm. reference Hannah Arendt's famous study, because she said that one of the things that characterized the banality of evil is a sort of failure of the imagination. Right. And I think Gene Hackman's character actively represses imagining Mm -hmm. what the implications of his actions would be, and thinks of himself as just someone who gets a good recording, Mm -hmm. turns it over, gets paid, and then goes on to the next project. And what happened with that recording is none of his business. Yeah, especially in the scene where a bunch of surveillance guys are partying after a night at the convention. So rather than go to a hotel bar like we do, (laughs) they went back to Harry's office. He keeps saying in that scene, they're not my tapes. They're not my tapes. I give them to the client and what they do with it is up to them. They're not my tapes. They're not my tapes. (laughs) But on the other hand, I was struck by the fact that when he goes to confession, so obviously he's Catholic. He gets upset when others use the Lord's name in vain. And so like, even when someone says Jesus Christ, he's like, please don't say that. But in confession, he confesses to the very thing, Jason, you're pointing to, namely, what I do could have made it possible for others to get hurt. Mm -hmm. And so the repression is not exactly complete. I mean, it's there somewhere inside of him, Mm -hmm. and he is aware of the damage he can do, and yet he tries to live his life as if it doesn't matter to him. Right. And there's something interesting about a person who avoids anyone knowing anything about himself walking into a booth where he doesn't even see who's in the other booth and just (laughs) spilling it all out, you'd think that would be a weak link in his attempt to not be seen or known. But I guess he trusts in the church and trusts in the seal of the confession. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but what's Um, funny is like this idea that he might be responsible for the deaths of others is like the third thing he confesses after (laughs) taking the Lord's name in vain and having impure thoughts. This is a little bit related to one complaint that I have about this film, which is that the main character's name is Harry Call. That's a little too on the nose for me, Coppola. <laughs> but but I did turn on the subtitles shortly after it started and realized that his last name is not C-A-L-L, like a telephone call, but a C-A-U-L, which actually doesn't make it better because... You know, there's this old suspicion that babies that are born with a call, babies that are born in the amniotic sac, basically, have a kind of sixth sense or are cursed in some way or something like that. And just the idea that he's literally walking around for the whole movie in a raincoat that looks like a call (laughs) and is constantly battling with how veiled or unveiled he's going to be and, and has this kind of sixth sense about hearing without being able to actually listen. I don't know. It was maybe a little too on the nose. (laughs) Yeah. Although I do think that this sense of like, it has nothing to do with me is pervasive throughout our society. I mean, fun fact about me, I used to work in the very same building that this movie was shot in. I worked in Embarcadero Center. 
I worked in the mailroom for a law firm for one <laughs> summer in San Francisco, the summer between undergrad and grad school. And I was in the very same building, used to walk up that same spiraling staircase, although I almost felt like I had to be dragged up it because I hated that job so much. But <laughs> I worked in the mailroom and I'm a voracious reader, so I would read things that I'm not supposed to read. I would read things going back and forth because I was bored out of my mind. And I began to have suspicions that this law firm well, they were representing the manufacturers in the silicon breast implant class action suit. I mean, I wasn't really working for them. I was a temp working for a staffing agency that was positioned there for two months. And I once said to one of my coworkers, who I got to know a little bit, like, what do you feel about working for these people? And he said, I just make sure they get their mail. I don't think about anything beyond that. And I go home and move on with my life. And I began to think afterwards, I was like, well, that's pretty much what Harry Call would say. It has nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. I'm just getting the mail to people. I mean, obviously, getting mail is not as integral as observing and recording a private conversation. But still, I do think that a lot of us get by the same way Harry Call gets by. We just sort of put our head down and try to do a good job, get a good fat recording whatever the equivalent of that might be. And whatever happens to the tapes afterwards, it's not really my concern. And that is Arendt's point about the banality of evil. You know, the Eichmann right. is just following orders, right? Just doing his job. And large-scale evil takes an awful lot of clerks. Mm -hmm. Right. And we tend not to focus on the clerks when we focus on the evil. So no one thinks about the telephone operators, and even the mail clerks and so on that are required in order to produce something like the mass killing of Jews, homosexuals, gypsies, and others by the Nazi regime. And in that sense, I think Harry is a perfect clerk. Right. I mean, it might be worth pointing out again, spoiler alert here, that it seems initially as Harry is recording the conversation between this young couple that what he's capturing is an illicit affair. Yeah. That's what it seems like. And there's one particular moment in the conversation that he has considerable difficulty getting clear. And when he finally does clear it up in the audio, it's the young man saying to the young woman, he'd kill us if he had the chance. And it's only then that he thinks back to this earlier case that he had worked where he had turned over a tape and then the people had gotten killed and he's worried now that this young couple is in danger. I mean, should we go ahead and say like how that was a misunderstanding? Yeah. yeah. And listener, if you don't want it spoiled, stop now, go watch the movie and come back. But I think we have to. Although it's worth pointing out, and I had forgotten this until I rewatched the film, that he only finds that line after he goes back to the tapes. Mm -hmm. After he right. first tries to just do his job, turn in the tapes, get paid, and he's kind of suspicious of the assistant, played by a dreamy Harrison Ford, has been meow. <laughs> oh, weird note: Harrison Ford apparently decided this is like Wikipedia gossip. Decided that his character should be gay. Oh, I'm not yeah. sure how that's supposed to come across, but Harrison Ford was very convinced that his character should be gay in the film. Mm. I mean. We don't know that, but Harrison Ford apparently thought that while he was playing the assistant. But anyways, when the assistant, the director played by Harrison Ford, is very insistent. There's almost a comical scene of him like playing tug of war with the envelope with the tapes on it that Harry then thinks there must be something more than just a simple affair. And he's able then, with the help of some kind of technology, to extract this line 
he'd kill us if he had the chance, which is, of course, is a line that, as we're going to discuss in a minute, is very ambiguous in terms of what it means. And also, I think we're supposed to take into consideration that the level of distortion means that we can't quite hear how it's said. Right. Mm-hmm. We know that it was said. We can't quite hear how it was said because it has to be extracted from the background noises of the street. He'd kill us if he got the chance. And in a sentence like, he'd kill us if he had the chance, the meaning of that sentence really depends on which syllable you put the emphasis. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So if it wasn't clear in what Rick just said, and without further ado, here's the spoiler. When he clarifies this moment in the recording where the young man says, he'd kill us if he had the chance, the sentence wasn't, he'd kill us if he had the chance but he'd kill us if he had the chance, which seems like maybe they're planning to kill the director. And this is a justification of that murder. And I think it's important that in the director's office, there are pictures of the director with this young woman. It seems as if they might be married or father-daughter. It's hard to tell because the director is played by Robert Duvall. And Robert Duvall, I think, is a person who probably looked like he was 60 from the time he was 30. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the young woman was played by Cindy Williams, who went on to play Shirley and Laverne and Shirley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even though we know that the plot is something different than the plot that Harry fears, we don't really, or I feel like I don't really know exactly what happened in the end, like who all was involved in it. Was was the assistant involved in the plot or was he just being a good assistant and wanted his boss to get the tapes that his boss had paid for? I mean, we do know that at the end when the director, played Robert Duvall, is murdered, there's a cover-up. They make the murder look like a car accident. There is a press conference scene. Although, as this film progresses, what is real and what's imagined begins to break down a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the film starts with a very kind of impersonal, like you're watching everything unfold from bird's eye view. But by the end of the film, because he has heard the tapes repeatedly – Harry knows where they're going to meet in a hotel, what the room number is, and he gets the room next door and sets up surveillance to listen to what happens. And he fills in the gaps of what he hears and what he sees, and we get scenes that we know didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. He first seems to see the murder that he fears happening, the murder of the young woman. But then later, we also see scenes that kind of unclear, are they what Harry then imagines has happened, or are they scenes from an objective camera point of view of what actually happened? Mm -hmm. I have to say, I had to watch the movie twice, like almost back to back. I had a day separation. But because of that very point, Jason, I wasn't convinced that I didn't misunderstand. Like, has Harry gone insane and all of this is being imagined? Or did it really happen that the young couple killed the director, as Harry seems to think by the end of the movie? I was very confused and I had to watch that whole thing all over again because I think you're right. I mean, one of the questions of the movie is – If all you do is hear and your hearing is crucial to who you are, what you do, and how you make a living, what happens if you start hearing things? That is, what happens if what you hear isn't real? 
And there's also a dream sequence in the interregnum here. And so it is very difficult to distinguish between what he's hearing and what he's not hearing, what he's imagining and what's real, what he knows and what he doesn't know. And I think that part of that is the character study of the film, a, a kind of descent into paranoia and a loss of a grip on one's own confidence in what one knows, hears, and sees. Yeah. And the, the dream sequence, I think, is interesting in terms of the character study because in the dream, which takes place in a foggy, empty version of Union Square where the surveillance happened, Harry sees the young woman running away from him. And he warns her, but he also starts just randomly citing facts about himself. Yeah. Confessions. Confessions yeah. about his mm-hmm. childhood, which throughout the film, right, he has two other sort of relationships with women. There's his girlfriend, uh, Amy, played by Terry Gar, who asks him, you know, tell me something about yourself. And he refuses. And it right. kind of terminates that relationship. She said, I, I don't think I'm going to be waiting around for you anymore. And then later he strikes up sort of a relationship with the woman. I think her name is Meredith. Yep. And he even asks her, like, could you be in a relationship with a guy who never tells you anything about himself? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, no red flag there, although – she turns out to be the person who stole the tapes from him, but that's another mm-hmm. matter. But he refuses to say anything about himself throughout the movie. And then he, of course, has a dream in which it's equally significant that he is finally able to be a person and say stories about his childhood, etc. seems to be as important to what's really driving the dream and sort of its you know latent content or whatever is being able to warn the woman about what he thinks is about to happen. The conversation that he has with Meredith, and he and the surveillance guys pick up these two women, I don't know, at the hotel after the convention or whatever, it's not really clear. But when he says, would you love someone who didn't tell you anything about themselves and yet really loved you, he says, Mm -hmm. her answer is both obvious and really strikes him, I think. Well, how would I ever know that he loved me? And I think this points to a dilemma in Harry's life. Namely, he is trying to isolate himself from everyone else, but that isolation means that he can't share what he needs to share about himself in order to have the human relationships that he really does seem to want to have. He's caught in this trap where he won't share because he's worried about surveillance and people knowing his birthday, and yet... He also wants connection, it seems, with other humans, and that tension is part of what drives his character. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, Hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. As we were saying, this film hinges on this interpretation of a line. He'd kill us if he had the chance. Which, as we've discussed, 
deadline can mean very different things. It can be both a fearful confession or it can be a justification for a murder. It's heard as one thing. It actually means another. But I think one of the interesting things that the film raises in terms of that evidence, that bit of data that drives a lot of the plot is to what extent that data, like all evidence, is already interpreted in a situation, right? We learn that Harry has guilt about what happened in a previous case where his tapes led to someone being murdered. I think he also has a strong sympathy for the young woman because she talks about her sympathy for the homeless before this happened. She seems incredibly sympathetic and empathetic as a person. There's also the fact that the song she sings is a song that later his girlfriend sings, which is kind of a paranoid moment, but also a moment of connection between the two. I mean, I think what's interesting about a film which is about the ability to see and hear everything, the thing that Harry doesn't see is the place from which he himself is looking Mm -hmm. and the place from which he himself is listening. And the place he himself is listening is a place defined, I think, by guilt and mourning of his impossibility of forming a relationship with anyone around him, that shapes his attempt to try and get involved, which he says he doesn't want to do, and try to save someone who he's worried about because of how he reads the scene. At what moment in the process of surveillance is something like truth uncovered? Because Mm -hmm. all of the people involved in surveillance in the movie seem to think they're getting at the truth, and the truth is something that usually people won't say out loud. It's something that we have to dig for, and we have to wiretap, and we have to develop microphones to figure it out. But once we hear the thing, we have the truth. And I think the misunderstanding that Harry has shows that just having the hearing is not sufficient to grasping the truth or knowing what is true. And so I think the way you phrased it, Jason, is quite right. Like, what then does count as evidence? One of the things that we also have to consider is first, even being concerned about the truth. Because when we first meet Harry, he doesn't care what the context of this conversation is. He only cares that he gets, as Jason says, a big fat recording or a good fat (laughs) recording, whatever it is. But then once he becomes concerned about what really is going on, what's the truth of what's going on, it starts to eat away at him, right? He can't see the ways in which he's in danger as well. And the more he becomes obsessed with who's in danger and from whom and am I also in danger, the more paranoid he becomes. And at the end of the movie, we haven't mentioned this yet, but it drives him to literally tear apart his apartment. I'm talking like down to the studs, you know, Mm -hmm. destroys all of his furniture, breaks down the walls, pulls out all of the appliances because he's convinced that he's being bugged. And we don't at that point, I think as viewers know whether we can trust him. I don't know that we can trust his paranoia anymore. I mean, Jason pointed this out to both Rick and I before we recorded this today, but there's this old saying, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you. And that's, of course, true. But that ambivalence is played out throughout this film. He's paranoid when maybe he shouldn't be, and he's not paranoid when maybe he should be. And a lot of that just has to do with, I think... The difference between the opening scene of the film, which is this bird's eye view where it's like, okay, everything can be seen, everything can be heard. And then in the end where it's just you in a room all by yourself, gripped by madness, 
just trying to find the truth that actually might not even be there. You know, there is in the movie this phone call that the assistant makes to him, which first of all, we have to say is for Harry always disturbing because although he has a phone, no one has the phone number. Right. As if someone who's involved in surveillance can't figure out that if you have a phone, someone has the phone number. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you just have to get to the person who has the number to you get it. You have to get the white pages. It's 1974. <laughs> <laughs> you call 411 as he does yeah. at some point. But he gets a phone call from the assistant and the assistant says, we know that you know. And we want you to know that we're listening and plays then a recording of Harry playing the sax along with a jazz album, which he did earlier in the film as well. And so Harry then realizes they're listening into his apartment. But I'm with you, Lee, that even in that scene, I'm like... Is Harry just imagining that phone call? Like, mm-hmm. what? Does he even have a phone? <laughs> right. Um, is he even in an apartment? Mm-hmm. But yeah, the ending of the film is a scene of just such absolute madness that it left me unable to determine when the madness actually began. Mm-hmm. Like, at what point did he go over to madness? Right. Which I think is weird. Like, if there's a lesson to this story, it's a weird lesson because you could almost interpret the end of the film as everybody would be better off if everybody stayed out of everybody's business. And that was sort of the problem that we started with was Harry, you know, it doesn't matter what this is about. I'm not concerned. This has nothing to do with me. I'm just doing my job. Right. Yeah, I guess I see the film a little differently. And I feel like there is a possible way for Harry to get out of the situation. If he had not cut himself off, I mean, he finally talks to his employee, Stanley, played by the great John Cazale, at the convention after they've kind of had a falling out because Stanley's sort of tired of not learning what's going on, not learning the ropes of the trade. You know, he's kind of an apprentice sort of character and he is working at someone else's convention booth. And only then does Harry say, I think I'm being followed. I think there's something going on with those tapes. Right. My interpretation of what actually happened is that Harry was hired to get the recording so that the director would be alone in a hotel room so he could be murdered. I'm sort of interpreting this like the director is someone maybe who doesn't go places without security and protection. We know he has someone wearing a gun later in the scene when Harry tries to get into the office or someone there who's armed. Right. So I think the director is someone who is well protected and wouldn't show up alone and without telling people where he was going unless it was for this very embarrassing situation of confronting I think it's a wife or girlfriend about an infidelity. You don't bring your bodyguard to that because it's embarrassing. (laughs) Uh, So I think that Harry is hired by people or maybe the assistant says, hey, why don't you get them recorded? That would dispel all your fears. So Harry Mm -hmm. is not an observer of this plot. He's internal to this plot, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's what he doesn't see. He thinks he's an observer. He thinks he's outside and he can choose to act or not act. But I think he's actually already implicated and his actions are already part of the plot that's been set up. But I do think, and here's where I had hope, is that maybe if he sat down and had a beer with Stan and started laying everything out, Stan might say, hey, you know, think about who hired you. Think about the assistant. Maybe he's involved. And maybe he could have figured out a way out. But because he tries to do this entirely on his own, he ends up – and maybe they knew that about him, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they knew he was both technically very good 
but not a very savvy person in terms of interpersonal skills. And maybe that's what they're counting on. I completely agree, Jason. I also think, sorry, I'm going to put my dairy dot pants on here for sure. a second, <laughs> but I also think that this is related to the fact that the film is titled The Conversation, but the conversation is the least important thing in the film. The thing that is the most important is the context of the conversation. And as much as people want to try to find truth in the conversation, whether or not it's truth of the affair or truth of the murder or the truth of who's going to murder whom, you can't find that truth in the conversation. It's in the margins of the conversation. It's in the absences of the conversation. You know, it's in the context of the conversation or the context in which the conversation makes sense or has some truth to it. It's like the definite article, the conversation, which conversation is the conversation is only determined by the context of the person who's listening to it. So right. the conversation is one thing for Harry at the beginning. It's a different thing for Stanley. It's a different thing for the assistant, and it's a different thing for the director. Right. Depending on from what perspective you're seeking the truth, the conversation might be not the conversation you're listening to. Right. And on this point, there actually was a reference to this film in a recent episode of Poker Face, which is the Natasha Leone series that's loosely based on Columbo. But in that episode, she references this film, The Conversation, because she's also trying to discover a truth about a murder by listening to a tape. And she realizes that what she should have been listening for was something that wasn't there. In this case, it was like a train passing in the distance and not something that was there. Mm. I mean, one, that's just a really brilliant reference to this film, but also I think reinforces the point that Rick just made. Right. And I think the assistant does, by the end of this, become the most interesting character because, you know, he's the one who calls Harry in the last scene and says, we're listening. He's mm -hmm. also walking behind the couple after the murder of the director. There's lots of questions about, okay, who's going to be the CEO now? And, and it, it seems very clear that she now maybe inherits everything. And yet mm -hmm. the assistant is behind them, like Slugworth in <laughs> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you know, creeping up behind them as if he's directing this whole operation. Then that made me realize that, in fact, Harry never gave the tapes directly to the director, that it was always mediated by the assistant. And so even what the director heard as the conversation, sure, it was determined by the perspective from which he was seeking the truth. But secondly, that was always mediated by means of the assistant who had a different perspective in seeking the truth. Also, when Harry walks in to the director's office in the scene where the assistant is playing the tapes for the director, yeah. the director is very angry at the assistant because he says, you just want it to be true. Mm, right. And so we get this sense that somehow the assistant is directing the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so therefore sets up the murder and sets up mm -hmm. all of this. And so in a sense, for him, what's precisely most crucial is that the conversation has no truth, because right. mm -hmm. if it has a truth, it could always contradict what he wants it to seem to be. And I think it's interesting the way in which because surveillance is so ubiquitous in the movie, people could listen to people for multiple reasons. We think we're listening to a recording having to do with infidelity in a relationship, possibly, but that could be entirely fabricated. 
mm -hmm. could have been entirely staged for the purpose of the recording. And what's really going on is a kind of corporate intrigue, eliminate mm -hmm. the director, put someone else in power kind of plot. Once surveillance is out there as a possibility, you know, people could listen for all different sorts of reasons. And what we think is the important evidence for one type of narrative might be the sort of background noise for a more important narrative, right? The more important thing, I think, about the tape is that it gets the director to go to the hotel room by himself. Right. That's ultimately mm -hmm. what the tape is for and about. And everything else is kind of incidental and stages that encounter. And this goes back to an issue we talked about already at the beginning of our conversation, <laughs> at the beginning of our discussion of, of the <laughs> of conversation, conversation. <laughs> um, namely the way in which surveillance does or does not affect our behavior, because on the face of it, that everything I do or and say could be seen and heard doesn't really matter. What matters is, A, who's doing the listening and B, mm -hmm. what are they doing with what they're hearing? Mm -hmm. Because what makes me paranoid is the truth is not something out there independent of people's seeking the truth, but is constituted by the very seeking of the truth itself. And therefore, now I have to worry about why do you want to know? <laughs> what are you looking for? Because now you're going to make something true that, from my perspective, is not true. That's where my paranoia begins. Yeah, that's where my paranoia also begins. And partially because of what you just said at the end there, Rick, which is that it's also about what truth you're looking for, what truth the person listening is looking for. That's weird, listening and looking, but you know what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. Like what truth they're trying to find. Because this reminds me a little bit of recently House Speaker McCarthy turned over the January 6th tapes only to Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson heavily edited them, edited out all the violence and then played it on Fox News with a commentary that basically said, look, these were just tourists, you know, being <laughs> escorted by the police at the Capitol. And like, I don't want us to go so far in our interpretation of this film that we would want to say any truth could be found anywhere in any tapes of any kind, that it just really just depends on who looking and what they're looking for because, you know, for very important reasons, I want to say, no, there is a truth of what happened and what didn't happen. But the end of this film, and I think this is the ethos of 1974, is maybe there just isn't a truth. Mm -hmm. The fear for me is less that I could be heard or recorded, but it is about the fear of the edit. It's about the fear of yeah, what could happen. Yeah to something said in one context shifted into a different context and the way in which a line like he'd kill us if he had the chance could come to mean something very different if heard and situated in a very different place. And last fun fact about that, apparently the line was recorded multiple times with different emphases for the film. And apparently Brian De Palma thought that that's where the film misstepped. The couple should have used the exact same line yeah, yeah, and had yeah. it mean different things when heard differently, recording it differently sounded like a cheat. Although, of course, this is also yeah. like De Palma had his own. He had blowout. Everyone was doing their version of blow up or a version of a kind of film which has to do with this question of 
evidence and its context. So there may have been an interdirector war about that. But I do think that my fear is less about being heard than about what someone could do in the edit. The edit seems more powerful than the act of actually hearing at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm really surprised to hear that, Jason, because I noticed that when it's first played, they say, how how would it go? He'd kill us if he had the chance. Yeah, he'd kill us if he had the chance. And then by the end, I heard he'd kill us if he had the chance. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Wow, it's amazing how I misheard this the first time. <laughs> and, I did the same and, and thing. So there is a way in which by him recording different versions of this, it actually is quite effective in making mm-hmm. me now making wonder. you doubt. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. which did I hear? I mean, I immediately started pulling up my hardwood floors as soon as that. <laughs> Well, this wall behind me is the last one that still has drywall on it. (laughs) So the bartender has been overhearing our conversation and thinks it's really time (laughs) to wrap this conversation up. But remember, none of us is an island in our society. And that includes this podcast, too, and this conversation that is being recorded and recording... (laughs) takes money and technology. So if you want to support this conversation and be able to listen in, please support us on patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. You can find us and you can support us at many different levels and make sure that we always get the tapes to you. And keep in mind that this conversation has already been correctly edited, so don't mess with it. (laughs) Jason, before we leave, I just want to thank you for bringing this film to my attention. Same. It was a remarkable experience watching this. So thanks a well, lot. I'm glad because when I first brought it up, you guys seemed a little bit lukewarm. I didn't know you hadn't seen it. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were like, oh, that film. I didn't know you hadn't seen it. Now I know why you were a little bit like, okay, we'll do that if that's what you want. I'm no longer. I'm piping hot about it now. This is a great film. <laughs> Notice that Lee's not getting on an app and calling a, an Uber or a Lyft for us. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I'm going to use the payphone. Good night, y'all. Bye. <laughs>